Well, it is uh, good to be with you uh, here this morning. Uh, we're having a, a little bit of uh, an adjustment with our uh, sound system. This speaker kept going in and out, uh, so we've turned that one off. And so if, you, if it sounds like I'm standing over there, uh, it's because that's the only, uh, only speaker on. Uh, but uh, if you have your uh, Bibles, why don't you open with me to John chapter 7. Uh, we're going to continue on in our study of John's Gospel. And as you're turning there, one of William Shakespeare's earliest plays uh, was called The Comedy of Errors. Uh, and uh, that play tells the story uh, of two sets of identical twins who were separated at birth uh, and who are, uh, ironically, also uh, each set of twins has the exact same name. Uh, and so, uh, as the story goes, in Antiphilus of Syracuse has a servant uh, named Dromeo of Syracuse. Uh, and the confusion, uh, the misunderstandings, and the errors begin to mount uh, as uh, these two visit uh, the city of Ephesus, uh, the hometown uh, of their uh, unbeknownst twins, uh, who are named Antiphilus of Ephesus uh, and his servant Dromeo of Ephesus. Uh, And while this is not one of the the most famous of Shakespeare's plays, uh, you have undoubtedly become familiar with that term, uh, the title of the play, uh, A Comedy of Errors, because it has entered into kind of our our modern English vernacular uh, as a way of uh, describing, uh, uh, as Merriam-Webster's Dictionary would define it, uh, a series of events made ridiculous by the number of errors that were made throughout. Uh, and there are many movies and plays that, who have followed along the, those lines and, and copied uh, that genre of uh, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And mistaken identities and, uh, and errors uh, abound in these stories. Now, and as we are reading through John chapter 7, as we study our way through it, we are in one sense reading a comedy of errors. Uh, because in this chapter... Uh, There are so many misunderstandings uh, and so many uh, statements that that are made uh, with tongue-in-cheek that that this really is a a making fun, a poking fun at this misunderstanding. And all of the confusion concerns who Jesus is. Now, in in past weeks, as we have looked at uh, John chapter 7, the irony began in this chapter uh, as... Jesus' brothers were, were counseling him, and they were uh, encouraging him to go up to the Feast of Booths and to, to use the feast uh, as a publicity tour. Now, hey, Jesus, you lost a whole bunch of disciples uh, back at the end of uh, John chapter 6, uh, and you need to do something to win them back. So why don't you go up to the feast and, uh, and be this public figure, do public things, work miracles, and impress them, and you can win them back. Uh, but Jesus says, no, this is, this is not the, the appropriate time for me to go up to the feast. And then in verses 11 through 13, uh, we're, we're taken to the feast. And what we see taking place there uh, is this big discussion among the crowd, this subdued debate that uh, no one wants to, to bring up uh, and make known because of fear of the Jewish leaders. And if the Jewish, the Jewish leaders had said, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to be out of the synagogue. So there's this subdued discussion at the feast, and there's this discussion of, who is Jesus? How should we interpret this man? Is in the, the big discussion that's mentioned is, is he either a good man or is he a deceiver? 
And again, the irony there is, well, he's, he's neither one of those. That's not one of the options that Jesus gives concerning how we are to view him. The irony continues uh, as Jesus uh, goes up to the feast and begins teaching in the temple. Uh, and, and as he's, he's teaching there, the, the people begin to wonder, how is it that this man knows so much without having gone to r- rabbinical school? Uh, where does he get this great learning? So they're really they're questioning his credentials uh, as a teacher. And Jesus ironically turns things around and questions their credentials as hearers. Uh, are they really willing and ready to submit to God? And if they if they are willing to do God's will, then they will know and be able to rightly evaluate Jesus's teaching. But then also. Jesus begins to to question the crowd about their desire to kill him. And he says, why do you seek to kill me? And and the crowd, many of whom are from Galilee uh, and were not aware uh, of the desire of the Jewish leaders who were predominantly in Jerusalem, that they they weren't aware that these Jewish leaders were, were seeking to kill Jesus. So when Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd says, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? Are you having delusions that people are after you? And so they say, you, you, you must be demon-possessed. You've lost it. But again, the irony is, is, no, Jesus is speaking the truth. There is a conspiracy against him to murder him. Again, as we've said in the past, we are now within the last six months of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, that This is in, in the fall uh, and in the spring when he returns to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's going to be uh, arrested and murdered by these same Jewish leaders whom he is speaking to among the crowd uh, in, here in John chapter 7. But, uh, and as we're going to, to look at our passage this morning, the errors of the crowd uh, and the ironic statements in this conversation between Jesus and the people are, are only going to, to increase. Uh, and, and I would dare say that this chapter would really be comedic if it wasn't so sad. And if the topic of conversation was, was not so serious, it would be very, very funny. Because there are, there are some occasions in which irony provokes laughter and joy, right? a, a cleverness. But there are other occasions when irony provokes tears and sadness. That's what we should be provoked to this morning. The irony of this situation is heartbreaking because this topic of the identity of Jesus is of the utmost importance. Errors and mistaken identity are really funny in Shakespeare, but they are tragic in Scripture. We cannot make mistakes about who Jesus is because what we believe about Jesus determines our eternal destiny. What do we say about him? Is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? Or is he Lord? Is he the son of God sent by God to seek and save the lost, to live and die for sinners? We have to come to a conclusion about who he is. And what we're going to see this morning in verses 25 to 31, is that as Jesus continues to interact with the crowd, he that is gathered around him in the the temple, there is a a series of confusions that are going to unfold in this discussion. And these confusions confusions center around the Messiah. Who is he? Where is he supposed to come from? And what is he going to do when he finally does come? 
And as we read this passage and, and study it together this morning, we're going to see these confusions are all interrelated and, and how they speak to our own situation is it's very easy for us to suffer from the very, very same confusions uh, that we see among the people in the crowd in the first century Jerusalem. And this, these errors and the confusion of the crowd must be observed so that we do not commit the same errors that they make concerning who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Uh, and their confusion must lead to our clarity concerning the person and the work of Jesus. So I, I would invite you now to, to look with me uh, at uh, this portion of Scripture, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord... He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so as we look at this, the, the question is, what is it that is so confusing about the Messiah here? And what are the people confused about? And what we're going to see are three confusions uh, and then one certainty as we study Jesus' interaction uh, here uh, with the crowd. Uh, and the first of these confusions that we're going to see uh, is in verses 25 through 27. And it is the confusion uh, about the Messiah's origin. Where is he supposed to come from? So Jesus is there in the temple in the middle of the feast, and he's speaking powerfully and persuasively. Uh, and some of the people who were from Jerusalem uh, begin to, to notice uh, that, hey, this, this guy, this Jesus, is the one whom the, the religious leaders uh, have been seeking to kill. And again, the people who were in Jerusalem, and John clarifies, those in Jerusalem knew the hostility, the animosity that was existing between uh, the religious leaders and Jesus. Uh, but those who had come to the feast from kind of the, the outer portions of Israel were unaware. that The Galileans are like, what are you talking about? And the Jerusalemites are, oh, this is the guy they're trying to kill. And so they noticed this, but they, and then they also noticed that, that Jesus is here speaking and teaching in the temple. And what are the religious leaders doing? Nothing. They're just letting him speak. Uh, and so uh, the, the people kind of ask this question. Well, maybe, maybe the, the, the rulers, the, maybe the leaders have come to the conclusion that this really is the Messiah. Maybe they really believe that this is the Christ. They ask that question. But then in verse 27, they, they immediately dismiss it. And they, they say, oh, well, we, we know where this one comes from. And the idea that, that they know that Jesus is from Nazareth. That they know his hometown. 
Right? There may be some who are there like, I've known Jesus since he was a boy. Right? How, how can he be claiming these things? Something similar to what was said by the Jewish leaders. Uh, if you just turn back a page to John chapter 6, verses 41 and, and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And they're saying, Hey, we know where you are from. Uh, but then, by, by emphasizing the fact that they know where Jesus is from, they kind of present a, a counter-argument uh, as to why, if they know where he's from, that, in, in their mind, disqualifies him from being the Messiah. And the next statement is, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Uh, and what they're referring to and what they're quoting is uh, there were some Jewish circles at that point in time who, who felt that the Messiah w- would kind of burst onto the scene from, from out of nowhere. He would emerge from complete obscurity uh, and be there to, to save his people and to deliver them from the Romans. Uh, that was their expectation. And this comes from a couple of Old Testament passages, and it also uh, is uh, taught in some of the, the books that, Jewish books that are not a part of uh, the Bible. Uh, but the Old Testament passages where this is kind of built upon, one of them is Isaiah 53, 8, which refers to or asks the question of who will declare his generation, uh, referring to the Messiah. And then Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. So there were some Jews that thought the Messiah was just going to suddenly be in the temple and be there to to deliver the people. Uh, And they had this expectation, like the Messiah is just going to to burst onto the scene. So you could state that the logic of their their argument in this way, uh, in a kind of a, a logical syllogism, they say, hey, we know where Jesus comes from, but Messiah, we don't know where he is supposed to come from. And therefore, the conclusion is that Jesus can't be the Messiah. The only problem with that syllogism is that the two premises are false, uh, and it's a false conclusion. Right? And, and what we're going to, to see uh, is that the, the people were confused without realizing that they were confused. Uh, and, and sometimes that's common to all of us, right? We can be very sure about something and yet also be completely wrong about it. See, uh, a husband can be 100% sure that he is not lost, that he knows exactly where he is. And the wife can be 100% sure that they are very lost, right? And they can be confused without realizing that, uh, that we are confused. And one of them can be right and one of them is wrong or less right. Uh, but uh, that's the, the emphasis there. And these people... Believe something, but they are utterly confused. And but within this, there's also a uh, a confused stubbornness, right? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who was very confused about something and yet absolutely adamant that they were right, that they were not confused? No, I know this for sure. Like you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, that's kind of what is happening here. Uh, but there's also a duplicity here among the people. Uh, because they'll say completely different things at different times, right? In this very same chapter, if you just move your eye over uh, to verse 40 in John chapter 7, 
Now you'll see that the people very much knew where the Messiah was to be born. So some people are saying, oh, the Messiah is just going to burst onto the scene. And others are like, no, we know where Messiah comes from. Verse 40 says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They were, they were aware of uh, the prophetic teachings of the Old Testament, of where the Messiah was to be born and whose lineage he was to be of. But there was a, a confusion here about the origin of the Messiah. But we must not be confused about where Jesus comes from. Again, their confusion should lead to our clarity. Uh, and the emphasis here is not so much that the crowd didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They very easily could have looked that up. They could have gone to the temple and seen uh, the lineage of Jesus and found out where he was born. And in Matthew and, and Luke's Gospels, uh, the focus is upon the detail that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, and they focus on that detail to establish that Jesus is fulfilling messianic prophecy. He had to be born in Bethlehem. But that is not the Apostle John's goal here. See, John is emphasizing not that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. John is emphasizing more where Jesus is from even before Bethlehem. And, and that's what we have to understand and be convinced of. Not just that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that Jesus was sent from heaven to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And we have to be convinced that Jesus' ultimate origin is not Bethlehem, earthly Bethlehem, but, but heaven. And that is where he comes from. That is where he was sent forth by God the Father to accomplish his mission in the world, to seek and save sinners. Uh, that, that is the truth that we must understand and cling to. Jesus is not just a man born in an earthly city. He is the Son of God who has come down from heaven. And the crowd was confused about Messiah's origin, but, but more importantly than that is going to be uh, an even greater and more dangerous confusion that Jesus is going to address next. Uh, what we see in verses 28 and 29 from the, the, the words of, of Christ is that there was also among the crowd uh, the confusion about knowing God. If you look with me at those verses. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And, and kind of a little bit disappointed in the ESV translation here. Uh, the, the very beginning of verse 28, uh, the ESV says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Uh, and, and that's really a, a poor translation of, of the Greek. The NASB does a much better job. This is what the NASB says. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying. Now, and the emphasis uh, there in the Greek is that Jesus cried out. He didn't just proclaim. He, he cried out and was teaching and saying. He was speaking in the temple. And, and the idea is, 
is this. That if you can imagine that we're there and we're watching this scene in verses 21 and 24, we are, we're looking at Jesus and, and we're hearing him speak and, and rebuke uh, the people. And he's saying, you must judge with righteous judgment. Uh, and then in verses uh, 25 to 27, where we take our eyes off of Jesus and we, we begin to look at the crowd. And as we focus in on people in the crowd, we begin to hear the, this, this murmuring, this discussion about who Jesus is and wh- where does he come from? If it, can he be uh, the one? Is this the, the one that the, uh, the leaders are believing is the Messiah? The, all of these things. So we take our eyes off of Christ and we kind of get lost in the crowd in verses 25, 26, and 27. And then verse 28 is there. You can imagine we, we've kind of gotten distracted. And then, and then 28, we see Jesus shouting. He's getting everyone's attention back upon him. This is the, the same word that's going to be used in verse 37. Now, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And that, that's the emphasis here. Jesus is saying, no, look, look back at me. You need to hear something. Jesus stands and cries out. And what he says is, I think, laced with irony and ridicule because of what the people have just claimed. The people have just claimed to know where Jesus comes from. Meaning they they claim to know who he is. And so so I think what Jesus is, is saying here. Uh, is is laced with irony and ridicule. And uh, the way that the, group, the Greek New Testament was written, it wasn't written with punctuation marks. Uh, and so what's translated in the ESV and the NASB and others as a statement, I think it's, it's better understood to be a question. Right? I think Jesus stands up and, and cries out, Oh, you know me, and you know where I come from, do you? Really? And that makes a better sense of what Jesus says here. He's almost laughing at them and again ridiculing them because they don't know him. And Jesus clarifies this. He says, I haven't come on my own accord. He says, I'm not a a self-appointed prophet. He didn't come on his own initiative. His, His message and his ministry began with God. Jesus came to the earth because he was sent by God the Father. And Jesus is acting in submission to the Father's will. That's what we have seen over and over again in John's gospel. So Jesus says, oh, you know me, do you? Really? But then in verse 28, he drops a a major truth bomb. He he makes a, a severe accusation against the people. And, and he contrasts his knowledge of God, his actually knowing God, with their false understanding and knowledge of God. And he says, you have known me, or, oh, oh, you know me and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Now this would have pierced uh, to, to the heart of pride of the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people saw themselves as better than the Gentiles because they believed that they were their chosen of God, and they were. Uh, but they also believed that they had a special place because God had revealed himself to them, and, and they did. But they prided themselves in the fact that they knew God and the Gentiles did not. 
So now Jesus is here crying out in the temple to this thousands of Jewish people. And he's telling them, you don't know the God that you think you know. And this is one of the most severe evaluations of a person or a group of people. If you look at the Old Testament of when this is stated, that someone did not know God, it's a very, very bad thing. First Samuel chapter 2, speaking of the, the sons of Eli who were priests uh, and who were robbing God uh, and the people. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. Jeremiah's condemnation says that the priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. The the priests in Israel at that time didn't know the Lord. Those who were to be the, the spiritual mediators between the people and God. They don't know the God that they're called to uh, represent the people to. This is a severe indictment. Then if you, if you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7, very sobering passage. In, in winding down the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 7, Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now what's remarkable is we've been reading through uh, the book of James this month in our our growth groups. Uh, If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, just start to make note of how frequently... James echoes what is said in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what does this sound exactly like? James says, we're we're not to be hearers only of the word. What are we supposed to be? Doers. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. Then verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a severe indictment. Right? And the, the level of which people can be confused about whether or not they know God. This crowd does not really know Jesus. They've claimed to know him, but knowing facts about Jesus, like, oh yeah, he grew up in Nazareth, does not mean that you know Jesus. They do not know Jesus because they ultimately do not know the God who sent Jesus. If they knew God as they think they do, they would also know Jesus, the one whom God has sent. 
If you're back in John's Gospel, just turn the page over to John chapter 8. This is going to come up over and over again in that chapter. John chapter 8, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Then if you look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And this understanding that uh, if you know God, you will know Jesus and vice versa. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is echoing the same thing that we saw even back in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Where Christ, again, in speaking with the, the Jewish religious leaders, says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Right? So you cannot claim to know God and reject Jesus. These two things are incompatible. If you truly honor God, you will also honor his Son, the one whom he has sent. And if you do not honor Jesus, then you cannot honor God. Yet there are many, many people who have deceived themselves by thinking that they know God. Knowing God is not merely based upon reading your Bible on a regular basis. Knowing God is not merely based upon your church attendance. It's not based upon your being born into a Christian family. It's not based upon what you have done in terms of good works. None of those things are the basis for you having a knowledge and a relationship with God. To know God truly and savingly means that you must know and honor Jesus. That you must look to Him whom God has sent in faith. And to know and honor Jesus, we must know that He is the Son of God. Not merely that He grew up in Nazareth, but looking to Him as the Son of God. To know and honor Jesus, we must understand what He has done on our behalf. And living a perfect life and then dying willingly as a sacrifice for sin on the cross and then rising from the dead on the third day. To know and honor Jesus, we must see our own desperate need for a Savior. And we must look and see who Jesus is, what He has done, and then see, I desperately need what He has accomplished. We must look and see and say, what I have done is completely worthless. The only thing I've done is dug myself into a hole that I can't get out of in terms of my sinful rebellion against God. I must look to Jesus in faith as my only hope in life and death. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that, that is the, the message of the gospel. That, that is what the, the crowds in Jerusalem are wrestling with. Who is Jesus and how should I respond to him? And that over and over again in John's gospel, that is what we must wrestle with. Uh, and, and if you're here this morning and, and you're still wrestling with that message, that's okay. And that's a good thing to wrestle with these truths of really saying, do I believe this? Am I convinced of this? And I would encourage you to keep wrestling 
Uh, And if you have questions, come speak with me after. Please speak with the person who invited you. But I would urge you and plead with you, don't continue to trust in yourself. Look to Christ in faith, acknowledging who he is, what he has done, and your desperate need for him. Don't leave here without knowing God through his son, Jesus. There's so much confusion in the world of those who think that they know God, and they really don't. Don't be among them. That was the second of these three confusions, right? The first confusion was the confusion about the Messiah's origin. The second was the confusion about knowing God. And then the the third, we see in verse 31, the confusion about Jesus' miracles. If you look with me at that, at that verse, it says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so what's amazing is that over the course of this this interaction, there's a great many people who begin to believe in Jesus that day in the temple. But their faith was not necessarily based upon his teaching. It was primarily based upon the miracles that he had performed. When they had seen the miracles that Jesus performed, they, they asked a basic but logical question, right? They kind of evaluated, like, look at all of the stuff that Jesus has done. And should we expect the Messiah to do even more than what we've seen Jesus do? And if you think about this crowd that, that has gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, uh, most of these people, whether they're from Galilee uh, or from Jerusalem and Judea, they have at least probably seen and or heard about the miracles which Jesus has performed. Right? Uh, they were so numerous. Uh, but think of it this way. Just in John's gospel, we have, we have this information. That the miracles that the people from Galilee would have seen and or heard about. Uh, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. John chapter 2. They also would have heard about uh, Jesus healing the nobleman's son back in John chapter 4, which was also, John chapter 4, verse 46, uh, took place, uh, or he came to Canaan in Galilee where he had made the water and wine. And at Capernaum, there was a man uh, whose son was ill. So the man comes from Capernaum and Jesus is in Cana and Jesus heals the man's son without even getting close to him. He heals from a great distance. Do you think that news would spread? Absolutely. Then John chapter 6, Jesus fed a great crowd of people. Right, the number 5,000 is, uh, is thrown around, but that 5,000 number was really just the number of men. I mean, when you factor in the, the women and the children, the, the number could be anywhere between ten to 20,000 people. So, so these are the miracles, just in John's gospel, that the people would have been familiar with from Galilee. And then in Jerusalem... And they would have been familiar with Jesus cleansing in the temple of the temple in John chapter 2, coming through uh, and clearing everything out. Those who were uh, using uh, God's house improperly, uh, making it into uh, a marketplace rather than a house of worship. And then if you look in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. It's very similar to what we see here uh, in John chapter 7. But if you look at the verses that follow there in John chapter 2, so all of these people are believing in Jesus and, and preparing to, to, to follow him. But Jesus, it says, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And there's a, a play on words. Uh, it's, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. So there is a kind of faith sparked by uh, the miraculous, but it is not saving faith. Uh, it is not the kind of faith that Jesus says, I'm going to entrust myself to you. This is, this is surface level faith. This is the kind of faith that, that wants to make uh, Jesus the Messiah in the middle of John chapter 6. And then at the end of John chapter 6, all of the disciples except for the 12 leave. Right? It's the kind of faith that's like, hey, I enjoy watching Jesus perform miracles. That, that gathers a crowd, but it does not transform hearts. And ultimately, as we've seen all of these miracles, at the end of John's gospel, the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25, John says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. All right, there are so many additional things that Jesus did, so many more miracles that he performed, that the, the whole uh, library on the earth couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. And this is what the, the people saw, and they're, they're beginning to evaluate. Like, well, like, look at all of the things that Jesus is doing. He could possibly be the Messiah. We wouldn't expect the Messiah to do even more miracles than this, could we? But again, faith based upon signs is, is better than no faith, but it is not necessarily saving faith. True faith consists of three things. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. Okay. Faith begins with knowledge. We must know who Jesus is and what he has done. But then faith has to go beyond just that knowledge. It has to lead to conviction. We must not only know the truth, but we must be convinced that it is true. Right? It's not just knowing the answer on the test, but being convinced that what I know is 100% true. It corresponds to reality. We must be convinced of this. But then ultimately, knowledge should lead to conviction, and knowledge and conviction should lead to trust, which is beginning to live according to what we know and have been convinced of. Right? You demonstrate that, that trust in everything that you know and have uh, the conviction about. The great theologian John Murray says it this way, that faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ, a transference of reliance upon ourselves, and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. That is faith, transferring our trust from ourselves to Jesus. That knowledge of I can't do anything. And as we read this, I don't necessarily see that kind of faith in these people. They're kind of looking at Jesus and we're like, nah, he's kind of the best option that we have right now, right? 
he could be the Messiah. Like, should we expect the Messiah to do more? Maybe not. So maybe we should go with Jesus right now and maybe hold out for something better. He'll be our backup plan and we'll stick with him for now. But we'll be ready to jump ship at a moment's notice. That's not saving faith. But, but that's what they seem to be uh, communicating here. They're asking a good question. They're moving in the right direction. But again, miracles do not necessarily produce saving faith. Now, we are told uh, not to believe in the miracles that Jesus performed. We are commanded to believe Jesus. Right? He's the object of our faith, not just what he has performed miraculously. The miracles of Jesus verified the message of Jesus, but the miracles were not in and of themselves the message. We, we have to believe the message of Christ, right? Uh, there were many people who, who flocked to Jesus for the miracles, but then left when he began to teach. So, man, this is hard. This is hard stuff that he's calling us to. I'm not sure I can do it. Feeding people, I like that, right? They, they liked having their bellies full, but they didn't necessarily want to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. And so there was a, a great confusion there uh, concerning Christ. And what we've seen in these three confusions uh, of the people there in Jerusalem, these, these have to be clarified in our own minds. Right? The people were, were confused about the Messiah's origin. They were confused about one of the most important things in all of existence. They were confused about whether or not they knew God. And they were confused about the, the miracles of Jesus. But, but in the middle of these confusions, there was one great certainty. Uh, and that's seen in verse 30. Some of you might have thought I skipped that one. I missed it over. But, but look with me. John chapter 7, verse 30. Here is the one great certainty that we have. That is the certainty of God's plan. Verse 30 says this, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. See, the, the Jewish leaders had been plotting to, to arrest and kill Jesus ever since John chapter 5. And they've been plotting and scheming in these things. And then here Jesus is publicly preaching, teaching, crying out. And they're like, why aren't they grabbing him right now? Like, what's, what's happening? And, and from a, uh, a human perspective, we're not given the answer right then and there. Although we're going to see, starting in verse uh, 32, that the Pharisees send the temple guard to arrest Jesus. Uh, and we'll see what happens. The temple guard comes and says, they, they hear what Jesus says and they go back. And the Pharisees are like, why didn't you arrest him? They're like, have you heard the guy speak? Uh, he, he's a really, like, no one speaks that way. Uh, but ultimately, the emphasis here. Uh, is not upon a human reason why he wasn't arrested and seized at that point in time, but a divine reason. Why wasn't Jesus taken and arrested at that very time? Well, because his hour had not yet come. The time of Jesus' death and glory had not yet arrived. All things were still operating right according to plan, uh, right according to uh, God's plan for the ages of all that Jesus would accomplish, all that he would do, everything that he would teach uh, was right on schedule. And Jesus says, no, this is, this is not when I'm supposed to be arrested and crucified. And contrast that later, John chapter 12, uh, towards the end, and then in the beginning of John 13, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, now Jesus knows this is the time. 
and he begins to focus upon his disciples. But, but concerning God's plan, it will always move along steadily, even when there is great confusion about Jesus. God's plan will move along steadily and smoothly, even when there is great hostility toward Jesus and anyone who would follow him. God's plan marches forward. It will not be derailed, and it will always operate right on schedule. Back on, on April 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And the very next morning in New York City, there, there was a very scary scene. There had been uh, placards and posters uh, put up uh, in New York, Brooklyn, and, and Jersey City calling for every loyal citizen to meet at the Wall Street Exchange at 11 o'clock. Thousands of people came, armed with guns and knives, and they were ready to avenge the death of the martyred president. 50,000 men gathered there. Think about that, in the streets of New York. With blood boiling and heart seeking violence and vengeance, they even put together and started carrying around a portable gallows through the streets. And they were going towards one particular uh, newspaper uh, which had uh, been very critical of Lincoln and almost uh, supporting the South. And this mob was marching towards this newspaper and, and they were chanting, wanting every person in every newspaper who had opposed Lincoln to die. There might have been a tremendous rebellion that day with, with blood staining the streets in a similar fashion to the French Revolution, right? But there was one man who was there who acted, General James A. Garfield, who would himself later on become the President of the United States. And General Garfield stepped forward and he, he beckoned for the thousands of people to hush. And hundreds of voices asked, uh, was it another, another telegram from Washington? And, and then he, he, he raised his hand and, and quieted them down again. General Garfield spoke these words. He says, fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are around him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Mercy and truth shall go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns, and the government in Washington still lives. The effect of these words was remarkable upon the crowd, almost miraculous, you would say. Here you have this crowd ready for insurrection, ready for murder. And he points them to the sovereignty of God. And there's a whole lot of chaos and confusion at that point in time. And he says, look, God is still reigning and ruling. His timetable is still perfect. One person who was there that day said this says as the, as the boiling wave subsides and settles to the sea 
when some strong wind beats it down. So the tumult of the people sank and became still. As the rod draws electricity from the air and conducts it safely to the ground, so this man had drawn the fury from the frantic crowd and guided it to more tranquil thoughts than vengeance. In the middle of our own times, when it is very easy to get wrapped up in everything that is taking place around us, and in the middle of all of this confusion, not just about who Jesus is, but the world itself is just muddled and confused, right? Where are we to find our rest? In the middle of all this confusion, we find our rest, our certainty that God reigns, that God has a plan, that it's going perfectly. And the hour is coming here in the gospel when Christ is going to go to the cross. But there is another hour coming when Christ is going to return. And that's when our hope, uh, that's where our hope should be set firmly and steadfast. That's what we must look to constantly. And that's what helps to calm the confusion and to bring certainty, not only to our own lives, but that's the certainty that we need to exhibit in the way that we live so that others begin to notice Everyone else is a, is a roiling, bubbling water right now, and we're calm. Why is that? And that message of peace, that, that message of comfort and trusting in the sovereignty of God is, is the message that needs to be upon our lips. Uh, that, that's what we need to, to point people to who are, who are worried and distressed. We have the message of hope. We have this certainty that God's plan will not fail. And that our King is going to return. And I pray that that would be upon our hearts, that we would be upon our minds, that it would be upon our lips as we go forth into our community this week. And as we live as ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray.